Thank you for joining us for today's podcast, where we will be teaching about the fruit of the Spirit, self-control. This can be a very difficult topic for us to examine. It will convict us and challenge us to be more like Christ, and I hope at the same time it will encourage you in all that you can become as you surrender to the power of the Holy Spirit. We're going to be finishing up our study on the nine secrets of healthy relationships, which are the nine aspects of the fruit of the Spirit. But as we said in the very beginning, it is the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruits of the Spirit, right? So we don't just have one of these when we have the Holy Spirit, but the Lord develops all of these in our life. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And in the New Living Translation says, but when the fruit, or excuse me, when the Holy Spirit controls our lives, He will produce this kind of fruit in us. So again, that's been a key every week. We've mentioned we have to give control to the Holy Spirit in us. And when we do, we will find the growth of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and our last one we are covering tonight, (coughs) self-control. Here there is no conflict with the law. If everybody walked in the fruit of the Spirit, there would be no need for Biblical law, and there would be no need for law in the land because everybody would love each other perfectly. And you may be seated if you are standing. But in heaven, there won't need to be a reminder of the law because we will be living this type of a life. I don't believe that the Lord's going to have to read the law to us in heaven. We won't need to hear. His word anymore because we will be living lives of perfection. I know it's hard to imagine now because I'm so used to making mistakes. (laughs) And I almost said that he would, he won't need to read it every day, but there won't even be days in heaven. There's no more need for measurement of time because time will never end. And there is no rising of the sun and setting of the sun. It's just light, eternal light in our lives. So heaven's going to be a marvelous place. And the closest we can get to living like that here on earth is by surrendering control to the Holy Spirit and his character being imputed to us or given to us, imparted to us is the word I was looking for. Just like on Sunday, we saw some impartation Uh, That's what the Lord desires to do in our lives daily as we read the Bible and as we pray. He imparts his character to us so that we don't have to uh, necessarily try to make these things happen. But as we surrender to the Lord, they happen because we're becoming more like him. Does that make sense? So self-control is a huge one. Um, It's no accident that. The first fruit of the Spirit mentioned is love, and the last mentioned is self-control. 
Because all of these spirit-produced traits have their beginning in love and their result is ultimately self-control. It begins in love and when we exhibit these other traits, it leads to the ability to have self-control. Billy Graham wisely points out there are men who can command armies, but they cannot command themselves. There are men who by their burning words can sway vast multitudes, but who cannot keep silent under provocation or being wronged. The highest mark of nobility is self-control. It is more kingly than regal crown and purple robe. Multitudes of people have self-control in one area, but they're falling apart in another area. Only the Holy Ghost can help us in all areas. He can empower us in such a way that we are able to voluntarily abstain from anything that might hinder the work of God in our lives. The Greek word translated self-control or temperance is a combination of two words. The first word means strength, power, might, and dominion. And the second word uh, mean, excuse me, the first word means in, and the second word means strength, power, might, and dominion. So when we have self-control, we are able to be in strength, in power, in might, and in dominion. Because again, it doesn't matter if we have dominion over everything else and we have no dominion of self. The sinful nature is part of each one of us. And the only way to control it is to live by spirit. A person with self-control is ruled from within. Ruled from within. A person with self-control is a person ruled from within. And of course, we know that rule from within is not even so much our willpower, but it's the power of the Holy Spirit working in us, right? Amen. The way the Lord is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we could ask or think, we love quoting that verse. It's according to the power working within us, right? So self-control isn't my willpower working within me. It's His power as I surrender my will to Him working within me. Does that make sense? So we are able to be ruled from within so that no matter what happens without or outside of us, it won't change our ability to stay in control. We don't have to blame it on everyone else, right? Well, if this person would have done that, then I wouldn't have responded this way. That's what we like to do, but really that's an excuse. God can help us be ruled within be at peace within. Be under control within. Galatians 5.16 says, Walk in the Spirit and ye shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Many people think it's easier just to yield to our urges than to have our desires under control. But when we look at the consequences long term, that idea is not so good, right? right? 
Instant gratification feels better in the moment, and sometimes it's much easier than exercising that self-control. But long term, there are consequences that outweigh what we feel momentarily. Proverbs 25 and 28 in the New Living Translation says, A person without self-control is as defenseless as a city with broken down walls. The enemy can come in and provoke us far too easily when we have no self-control. If you had siblings growing up, there's usually, in the multiple sibling families, there's usually a sibling that's the easiest to get going. There's usually one of your brothers or sisters that you know, you just push a little button and it's Fourth of July. Fireworks are going to explode. It's going to go crazy. And the, the devil knows that we are that way if, if we don't have any self-control through the power of the Holy Spirit. He can come and he can bring things in our life that just set us off and distract us, get us off track to where we can't do anything for God because uh, we've just went crazy over some little thing. So the more we learn self-control, the more we can stay focused and on task and we can avoid these outbursts in our life that are destructive to not only God's purpose, but sometimes to our relationships. And then we have to go back and work really hard to make up for it. Anything uncontrolled can harm our relationships. Some of these things are not uh, bad when they're under control. But when they're out of control, they're devastating. Take uh, anger, for example. There is a righteous anger. That's okay. Be angry and sin not. To have righteous indignation. Uh, God cannot sin, but there's times where God is angry. So the problem with human anger is when it's out of control. Ephesians 4, 26 through 27 in the New Living Translation says, don't sin by letting anger gain control over you. So again, is, is the anger controlling you or are you controlling your anger? Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. For anger gives a mighty foothold to the devil. It gives him the ability to come again and just provoke us while we're angry. Our defenses are down. And we're not thinking clearly. Secondly is uncontrolled lust. Within the bounds of God's defined area. Intimacy is fine. But it needs to be between a married woman and a married man. That are married to each other. In that context it's pure and it's holy and it's good. But anything outside of that is uncontrolled lust. Proverbs 6.26 in the contemporary English version, which we'll read a few verses because just as it says, it makes it very plain for today's language. It says, a woman who sells her love can be bought for as little as the price of a meal. But making love to another man's wife will cost you everything. So we must be careful. Our relationships may seem, again, in the moment, it's a momentary decision, not a big deal. But long term, it can be extremely destructive. 
Next is uncontrolled spending. Again, it's not wrong to spend. We all have to spend. There wouldn't be need for money if we didn't have to spend, right? What good is money if you don't spend it? But at the same time, it needs to be under control. Proverbs 21, 20, the wise have wealth and luxury, but fools spend whatever they get. So Lord, help me to control my spending and investing in the kingdom of God, spending wisely. Those are not bad. Those are good. But when it's just totally out of control and we don't, we just impulse buy without even thinking about consequences. That's when it's a problem. Uncontrolled drinking. This is a big topic in the Christian realm today, whether you can drink or not. And and we take a very safe stance as a church. And we we at least ask that you can consider, especially if you're uh, part of leadership, it's it's a lot more than uh, just asking. But if you're just a member, we would ask to consider not drinking alcohol at all just to keep it safe. And people will argue against that or whatever. And a social drink now and then, a, a glass of wine with dinner or whatever, is that going to send you into eternal damnation? No. But it's what that glass can lead to, right? So Proverbs 23, 29 through 30, again, the contemporary English version, puts it really plain. It says, who is always in trouble? Who argues and fights? Who has cuts and bruises? Whose eyes are red or bloodshot? Everyone who stays up late having just one more drink. Can you believe that's a verse? Everyone who stays up late having just one more drink. Those are like the famous last words, right? I'm just going to have one more drink. No, no, bartender, don't cut me off. I just want one more. Hey, guys, don't leave. I just, I'm just going to have one more drink. Okay? We'll go home together. Just, just wait for me. I just have to have one more. This is like famous last words. Uncontrolled drinking will get you in trouble. Uncontrolled ambition. Again, ambition by itself. It can help us not be lazy, right? It can help us to overcome laziness. And so ambition isn't bad, being wanting to do things for God. But if it's out of control, is when it gets to be a problem. 1 Timothy 6, 9, again, in the CEV, Contemporary English Version, says people who want to be rich fall into all sorts of temptations and traps. They are caught by foolish and harmful desires that drag them down and destroy them. So being rich in itself, the Bible never really condemns, right? I don't, I don't know any place where it says you can't be rich, but it, it's talking about the love of riches to the point where you lose out with God. It's talking about letting the love of money overcome you to where this, what this verse is talking about, you'll compromise your Christian integrity just to make another dollar. So that's what it, uncontrolled ambition leads to. Compromising our Christian values to get a little bit further in our pursuits. Finally, the uncontrolled tongue. You know, self-control is such a tough, tough topic. And 
We've already uh, been challenged enough to go home right now. And then we just casually throw in this one that's easy enough to swallow by itself, right? Uncontrolled tongue, James 3, 5 through 6, the New Living Translation says, So also the tongue is a small thing, but what an enormous damage it can do. A tiny spark can set a great forest on fire. Another application for only you can prevent forest fires. And the tongue is a flame of fire. It's full of wickedness that can ruin your whole life. It can turn the entire course of your life into a blazing flame of destruction. For it is set on fire by hell itself. Lord, help me to learn to control my tongue. Right? And if we had more time, we just teach also that the best way to control the tongue is for the Lord to have the heart. Because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So if I can get God to, con- to help me in my heart, that's going to help me in my tongue. Right? There's a, gr- a growing uh, body of scientific evidence. A growing body. I didn't just read that. There's growing bodies around Mine included, but a growing body of scientific evidence along with medical studies confirm that those who attend church regularly are consistent with their faith. They are better both physically and mentally. Scientific evidence, remember, scientific evidence is always true according to the world. And so we're going to use scientific evidence for a moment instead of just the Bible. But scientific evidence and medical studies are giving evidence to Christianity helping us mentally and physically. A study of the factors that contribute to healthy families found that 84% of strong families identified religion as an important contributor to their strength. 84% of strong families said that religion was an important Contributor to the strength of their family. Alcohol abuse is highest among those with little or no religious commitment. One study found that nearly 89% of alcoholics lost interest in religion during their youth. And I know we're not going to remember all these stats, but we'll go through them quickly for sake of time. And uh, we're going to record this so you can listen to it later if you want. Numerous studies have found an inverse correlation between a religious commitment and drug abuse. Among young people, the importance of religion is the single best predictor of substance abuse patterns. Okay, how much a young person is committed to religious activity has a direct correlation to them becoming a drug abuser. Joseph Califano almost California, but he is the head of Columbia University's Center on Addiction and Substance Abuse. In his words, quote, every individual I've met who successfully came off drugs or alcohol has given religion as the key to their rehabilitation. People who do not attend church are four times more likely to commit suicide than those who frequently attend. Lack of church attendance correlates more strongly with suicide rates than any other risk factor. 
Heart surgery patients with strong religious beliefs are much more likely to survive surgery. I don't know who conducts all these studies. But elderly men and women who attend worship service are less depressed and they're physically healthier than their peers with no religious faith. And one study found that church attendance predicted marital satisfaction better than any other single variable. The National Marriage Project, undertaken by Rutgers University, found that living together before marriage increases the risk of breaking up after marriage. It also reported that cohabitating women are twice as likely as married women to be physically abused and are three times as likely to be depressed. So... And now you're doing great. You're going to church. Is this good information? Too late for you, brother. Luke. Too late. It's not too late, but yeah. There's still hope. There's still time. Sorry, hope is his. So being a Christian, although it's not very always the most popular in this particular area, and we're believing God for that to change, but it's good for you. Mentally and physically, it contributes to self-control. And here again, we see drug use, we see alcohol abuse, we see um, relationships broken through divorce, we see depression, we see suicide. These are all things that are lacking in self-control, right? These are all behaviors that come when we have no self-control or at least not enough self-control to prevent ourselves from making these harmful decisions. So going to church improves our self-control. Just being part of church. And I'm sure if we had a way to measure the statistics for those who are filled and surrendered to the Holy Spirit, it would spike even more. So self-control is not only a good idea, it's God's idea. Self-control is not only a good idea, it's God's idea. Self-control is not self-improvement. There's a lot of self-improvement books, right? There's a lot of, um, even, there's even a lot of theology that kind of leans towards self-improvement. It's not just an attempt to make things better for my life as a Christian, but it's my expression of appreciation to Him for His great salvation and to, to show His love and exhibit His love in all of my relationships so that others will see the goodness of God in my life. And the enemy does want to call us hypocrites as Christians and when we make mistakes and and all those things, uh, we have to trust God. But the balance of that is, is there are truly hypocritical Christians who are not trying to do better. Right? I believe all of us here are trying to do better, so none of us would be labeled as hypocrites. But there are some who are. They they claim to be Christian and they, they don't do anything, let alone even go to church. But they claim to be Christian. They treat people like garbage. And it's better off if they just said, I'm a rank sinner. I'm not a Christian. And then just live how they want to live. Because you're giving God a bad name. 
But as God gives us the ability to have self-control, then we can show others the love of God. And also, uh, when, when I do make a mistake and I learn self-control that allows me to, to humble myself and go back and ask for forgiveness and, and tell somebody I was wrong, that shows them my Christianity, sometimes just as much if not more as my good behavior. When I'm able to go back and say, I was wrong, because that's pretty rare nowadays, too. So there's an opportunity on both sides when we have God's self-control to to do the right thing. And when we do make a mistake, we have the self-control to make things right. Both occasions will give glory to God. At the end of the day, it's not all about me. That's part of self-control is living for others. Living to glorify Him in my life. Regardless of what that means for me. Because a lot of the lack of self-control is rooted in our selfishness. When we, we act like a toddler and we're an adult. Right? And some people, unfortunately, in society, you see how they behave in the workplace. And they're basically a toddler in an adult's body. They have no self-control. And so their relationships are shallow because it's hard to have a really deep relationship with a two-year-old. Right? Because two-year-olds, it's all about them. Right? And that's okay if it's your child. If it's your child or... You know, it is a struggle more when it's your brother or sister. And you're, you're frustrated that it's all about them. And as a parent, you give them some grace because you're like, this stage is going to end one day. And I'm looking forward to it. But when it's an adult who behaves that way, people are just like, it's not worth my time. This person has to realize the world doesn't revolve around them. So 2 Peter 1, 3-4, again in the, the contemporary English version, we have everything we need to live a life that pleases God. It was all given to us by God's own power. So again, the source of our ability to live a life that pleases God is rooted in God's power. When we learned that He had invited us to share in His wonderful goodness, God made great and marvelous promises so that his nature would become part of us. So again, that's, that's where our ability to have self-control it comes from His nature. And that's what true holiness is. is It's receiving God's nature and living and exhibiting God's nature. When this happens, it says, Then we could escape our evil desires and the corrupt influences of this world. So there's two enemies at, at work at once in our lives. To self-control, it's my own evil desires and it's the corrupt influences of the world. There's two enemies at all times. My flesh and the world. Only a good idea, but it is God's idea. Yes, self-control is not only a good idea, it's God's idea. That might be a lot to write in that small space there, but self-control is not only a good idea, it's God's idea. 
So two principles of self-control. And this half of the page is probably going to go quite a bit quicker than the other half of your page. But the two principles we'll discuss for sake of time. Obviously, there's more principles, but two that are important and uh, were listed by Brother Raymond Woodward, who uh, developed this study. Is number one, feelings can be ignored. Again, this is that revolutionary idea that should hit us when we turn about three or four. And we, we have to learn through the process of application to the seat of correction in our lives. Feelings can be ignored. Emotions can certainly add spice to life. But many people depend on their feelings to determine what kind of day they're going to have. And when I say many people, I say all of us <laughs> to a certain extent. We wake up and the way we feel about our day is what we start to expect about our day. We become more self-controlled when we are able to understand that feelings are fickle. They come and they go. And I don't always have to listen to what I'm feeling in the moment. Part of Romans 12, 1 through 2, we won't read the verses for sake of time, but it talks about being a living sacrifice, climbing up on that altar. And there's the picture of sacrifice of the animal being, being sacrificed and being burned we, we climb on the altar and we have all that is not like God is burned out of us. But we even find even greater life in that. What's left and what remains and what lives is greater than whatever we had to have crucified. So no matter what I feel is best for me, when I submit to God's word, eventually, not only will my outcome be better, but eventually I'm even going to feel better about it. And talking about relationships, especially with marriage, I always tell people, ride out the storm. In the middle of those, those storms and marriages, when so many people give up because the feelings have left, they're missing the blessing that comes on the other side of it. Because in the middle of the storm, those, those feelings fade but when you get through it, the feelings are actually stronger than before. The emotional connection is stronger than before the storm. But you have to go through that period of your feelings not being good. Or even your feelings being hurt. But when you reconcile through the grace of God. And that's even in our relationships of brother to sister in Christ or Friends, brother to brother, sister to sister, whatever the particular situation, when we hurt each other's feelings or we make each other upset, some people, they just walk away from the relationship or they turn cold to that person and they don't want anything to do with them, but they don't understand if they work through it by the grace of God, they're actually closer friends or closer brothers and sisters in the Lord on the other side. Does that make sense? Right. I'm saying it really fast because I'm, I'm conscious of our time, but... The challenges in our relationships in life where we learn to run are actually opportunities to get closer together than ever before. Yeah. 
And that takes a, a switch in our thinking because of things we've seen modeled or things in our past we've experienced. But in our church, I believe we're developing that culture. When we have problems, we sit down and we talk about it and we work through them. And on the other side, we're, we're actually closer and we trust each other more and we love each other more than before. It's oddly strange, but it's true. If we see a problem, we can say, here's an opportunity to get closer. Here's an opportunity to learn more about that person and what makes them tick so I can avoid doing that to them again. Society constantly bombards us with the idea of following our feelings. Everything from sex to spending is sold to us based on emotions, right? (laughs) Commercials and billboards and movies and all these things are sold based on our emotions, convincing us we need something to be happy. If you just get this, you're going to be happy. They show all these Totally unrelated things to emotional happiness. And they try to sell it by these things. They have these people like, you know, frolicking in the meadow and walking through the park together. And they just look so happy, you know. And you you think, well, I'm not happy. They're happy. If I have what they have, I'll be happy. It's that subliminal message, right? I mean, we're sitting there, we just ate an entire dinner, and all of a sudden we're emotionally attached to a cheeseburger. Because somebody is sitting there enjoying it, and they're just, they're ooing and aahing, and the wind's blowing through their hair, and the barbecue sauce is dripping down their chin, and they just, they're just like, you're like, oh, I got to have a Carl's Jr. cheeseburger. Some flame-broiled goodness. And you can't even hardly swallow anything because you're so full. But all of a sudden, you're emotionally engaged in a cheeseburger. And that's just one example of how we are constantly bombarded in our emotions to buy something or to, to give to something or purchase this or purchase that. We save a lot of money, we save a lot of time, we save a lot of hurt. We have a lot of self-control when we learn to just ignore our feelings for a few moments. It's going to change. People fall in and out of love. They have good days and bad days. They decide to work or goof around based on what they can get out of it emotionally. Studies consistently show how people expect to feel Effects, excuse me, studies consistently show that how people expect things, it affects how they feel things. However you expect to feel about something will have a great contribution to how you actually feel about it. If you convince yourself that you are not going to enjoy it, you are probably not going to enjoy it. Does that make sense? So how you expect to feel throughout your day in the morning will have a long ways in going how you're going to actually feel. But I'm going to 
feel upset today. I'm going to be mad today. I can't believe I have to do this today. I don't want to do that. That's going to make me mad. You're probably going to be mad. Right? You've sealed your own destiny. <laughs> but you can you also say, you know what? This isn't going to be fun. I'm not, not feeling real happy about this. But I can make the best of it. I can find something to enjoy in the middle of this. And then all of a sudden you get it done and it's over before you know it. Not so bad. And that's why my dentist used to hide the needle. He had this big old needle for numbing. I mean, this one time I finally saw it. I'm like, no wonder he never let me see that thing when I was a kid. So needles are big. And he would just distract me. He was a, he was a master. He should have had a magician, like a job as a magician on the side. But he would like be talking to me and get my focus somewhere else. And then he's just wiggling my jaw. And my, he got his finger and he's wiggling my cheek and he's pinching it and wiggling it and distracting me and he sneaks it underneath my, where I can see and I got my head back uh, and he reach in there and all of a sudden he pulls it out and he's done and all of a sudden I started getting numb but I just felt just a tiniest little prick but if I would have seen the needle first I'd be like he ain't putting that thing in my mouth that thing is going to hurt and then it would have been all tense and it would have hurt But he hides it from you so you don't know. It got to move on, but that's probably why certain things, it's just better to be ignorant when you're eating it. You don't know what it is, right? Because it changes your, your expectations of what it's going to taste like when you know what it is. You know, I, I had some, the first time I had lingua tacos. You know, it just tastes like real, real uh, tender roast beef. And then you find out it's a cow tongue. Yeah. So it's good, but it kind of changes your perspective. Like, I, I taught on the power of the tongue in a youth class one time. And, and I had a plate where I had the cookies. And I always put the cookies on a plate and I cover it with tinfoil, put it in the middle of the table. And... One of the girls was really excited to have cookies that day. And I had stuck a cow tongue on the plate. And those things are like this big. They're, they're big. About that tall. About this big. And she yanks the tinfoil off. And she's like, ugh. She jumps back. She had a, a little bit different opinion about eating what was on that plate. But it was a cow tongue. I was a little bit ornery, but I think ornery is my middle name, so. He's not going to say, he's not going to say. Yes, the tongue just, I couldn't control it that day. So. All beef hot dogs. That's why I get all beef. Yeah, all beef kosher, especially Hebrew National, Nathan's. Those are good hot dogs. Okay, I was yeah. gonna say at the end, but um, yeah. uh, tacos a cabeza too. Amazing. Don't look up what Jello has in it. No. Oh, we 
Okay. You are you are partaking in animal products when you eat Jello. So, anyways, moving along. For, for sake of time here, we'll have improper feelings from time to time that urge us to do something that is physically, mentally, or spiritually harmful. We'll have improper feelings from time to time that urge us to do something that is physically, mentally, or spiritually harmful. Temptation in itself is not sin, but when we act on the temptation, that's sin, right? Sometimes we're embarrassed or we're, we're ashamed of temptation that we even feel, but it's not bad unless you do it. You can repent of it and move forward. You can ignore it and not feed your feelings. We're able to overcome this battle when we don't feed those feelings. Titus 2, 11 through 12. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no. So this is what God's grace teaches us. Because some people say grace is a license to sin. Maybe not in that many words, but grace covers all my sin. That's true, but that's only if you're trying not to sin, right? And true grace will actually teach us to say no to ungodliness. That's what Titus says. Grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, not uptight, and godly lives in this present age. Some people, they read that verse and they think it says uptight, but it says upright. Grace teaches us to live upright and godly lives in this present age. God's Spirit helps us to say, no, I will not do that. I don't care how I feel about it right now. I'm going to control myself. So grace teaches us how to do that. And it even gives us help to do that as we surrender to it. Say, God, I'm really struggling. I really want to say yes to this right now. I really want to say yes. You can be honest with God. I'm really struggling to say yes. Please help me say no. Quickly. And God will help you. It's okay to pray that way. It's like, Lord, I'm about to do it. Please help me. I don't want to do it. Help me, Jesus. I want to smack him so bad. Tell me not to smack him. McClint's going by sesame donuts. Lord, I want to turn in there. Lord, I want to eat that donut. Lord, I want it. I can taste it. Lord, help me. And God can help us in those moments. And even something like that, because if we're trying to prove ourselves physically, God's concerned with that. We're trying to take care of our, our vessel, our temple. We're trying to keep from becoming a mega church. <laughs> the fruit of the Spirit is hidden deep within us, it is unseen. But it works within us as we give the Lord control. Number two, finally. Number two is ditches can be avoided. What? Ditches. You know, like on the side of a road. Oh, ditches. They can be avoided. Not ditches. Not ditches. Mine are, mine, find a way to get avoided. 
Personal freedom is like a highway with a ditch on each side, right? Personal freedom. There's one side of the road, the proverbial right, we'll say, because of what people usually think, and the proverbial left ditch. There's legalism, and there's a fancy word, licentiousness, which means whatever you want to do, do whatever. Do it. Give into it. The rest of us would say law and loose living. Legalism restricts freedom to the point of bondage. Okay, when you live completely legalistically, it restricts you to where you're in bondage. While licentiousness or loose living or doing whatever you feel like doing celebrates freedom, enjoys the moment of doing whatever you want to do, but that actually leads to bondage, destroying the very thing you're celebrating. Right? I'm free, I'm free, I'm free. And you end up in jail. Sometimes that can happen literally. Right? And it can certainly happen spiritually. We celebrate our freedom to do whatever we want. And then we end up bound in the end. Self-control is the line running up the center of the highway. The dotted line. It's balanced between two extremes. Self-control means, here comes your fill in the blank. I say no to all that God forbids. I'm able to say no to those things that God forbids. I say yes to all that God commands. I say yes to all that He commands. I say no to all that is a hindrance, even when it is not forbidden. Okay, say no to hindrances, even if they're not forbidden. If you know it's hindering you, the Bible says if you know to do good and you don't do it, what is that? Sin. It's sin. So maybe it's not even forbidden for other people, but if it's hindering you in your walk with God, don't do it. Say no to it. There's certain things you won't be able to handle that somebody else can and vice versa. There are a place for what we call personal convictions, things that God is saying don't do that because it's hindering you. If someone else can do it, don't put them in eternal damnation. Don't say you're going to hell in a handbasket. Just because they're doing something you wish you could do, but it bothers you and it hinders you and so you can't do it. But the Bible doesn't specifically say you can't do it. Just for you, because of your past and your certain personality traits and weaknesses, you can't do it. So... I say no to what's a hindrance, even if it's not forbidden. That's, that's self-control. And that's why it has to be spirit-led. Because some people, they want to do, they want to always question what they can do and what they can't do. Because they're really trying to figure out what they can get away with. Not how they can go deeper in God. A lot of those people in the Bible came to question Jesus. And they said, what do I have to do to be saved? And he told them. And they didn't want to do it. Because they were expecting an easier thing. So I, and finally it says, I say yes to all that is a blessing, even when it's not commanded. So again, self-control brings us beyond the place of what I have to do. And I begin to life, live a life that says, what do I get to do? How can I become closer to God? What, is, what, what can I do to get deeper in my relationship with him, How can I make my relationships with others even better? Not, okay, what is the most I have to do to, to, 
to be a, a good brother or sister in the Lord? What, what do I have to do to stay married to my spouse? What does the Bible say that I, I have to do to be right and for them to be wrong? Instead of, Lord, how can I love them better? How can I show them how much they mean to me in an even greater way? Galatians 5.13 says, For brethren, you have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to your flesh, to your carnal, sinful desires. But use that liberty by love, serve one another. So a liberty that leads to self-indulgence is not a good liberty. God says use your liberty to love and serve others. In 1 Corinthians, Paul gives us several principles to help us make decisions in questionable areas of life. Coming towards close, we'll be done shortly here. Some questions, some principles. All things are lawful, but will they lead to freedom or Slavery. Okay, again, in, in the flesh, people know if they disobey the law of the United States of America or Washington County, they're going to get a better look at the county from behind bars. They're going to be reminded of what county they're in by their clothing, right? Every day. They're going to have an orange jumpsuit. No, no. So, they... It's not just about what the law of the land is, because Paul, again, is telling these people, you know, yeah, that may be lawful in the laws of the land. But let me ask you some things. Just because you won't get arrested in the flesh for that. Will it lead to freedom or slavery? Just think about a lot of people make decisions based on will this get me arrested or not? Right. 1 Corinthians 6.12, all things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient or they're not profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. In other words, I don't want to become enslaved to anything. Okay, it, might, it may be lawful, and we don't follow the law of the Old Testament anymore. It's really... Probably what he's referring to even more here is we're not under that law anymore. But if I do it, is it going to bring me into slavery? Is it going to be profitable? Next, the question is, will this make me a stumbling block or a stepping stone? Not only for me, but for those who are influenced by me. If I decide to live this way or do this or act out on this feeling or whatever the case, is it going to make me a stumbling block for those around me, for myself? Or is it going to be a stepping stone for myself and others to get closer to the Lord? 1 Corinthians 8, 9, But take heed lest any, by any means this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to them that are weak. 
So again, just because I can handle it, just because it doesn't bother me, just because maybe it doesn't even affect my spirituality. If, if I know it's really going to make someone else stumble, then I should probably try to not do it in front of them at least. If it's reasonable. Okay? Now if someone tells me, if I'm eating a cheeseburger and I have no conviction of fast, it's going to make them stumble. You're going to have to stumble. Because I'm going to eat. If you want a 40-day fast, God's telling you to do that. And if God tells me, that's one thing. But if, if just because I eat, that's causing you to stumble. I'm sorry. But I'm going to eat. <laughs> so, again, it has to be reasonable on both sides. Okay? Will this build me up or tear me down? This decision. Is it going to build me up or tear me down? 1 Corinthians 10, 23. All things are lawful for me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but all things edify not. Okay, is it going to be edifying? Will they only please me or will it glorify Christ? 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. Try to glorify God in everything we do. Will they help to win the lost to Christ or turn them away? If my, what is my decision going to do? Is it going to lead others to Christ or turn them away? Even as I please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. So I'm not just seeking to profit myself, but I'm trying to help others profit Help them be saved. The way we use our individual or personal freedom shows if we are truly living under the power of the Holy Spirit. The way we use our personal freedom shows if we are truly living under the power of the Holy Spirit. Like people say sometimes, you say you have the Holy Ghost, but does the Holy Ghost have you? Right? Before the listening of the fruit of the Spirit, and we're concluding this series, bringing it down to a close here. But before we read, read those scriptures in Galatians 5, 22 through 23... There's the, work, the works of the flesh that are listed in verses 19 to 21. And the New Living Translation says, When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, again, this is, this is unchecked or unbridled, no self-control. You just follow your sinful nature. This is what happens. Your lives produce these evil results. So we have the fruit of the Spirit that we've been studying these are the things that happen if we don't allow the fruit of the Spirit to grow. And this is every person, not good person, bad person, this person, that person. This is every person. If we follow our carnal nature, these things result. Sexual immorality, impure thoughts, eagerness for lustful pleasure, idolatry, participation in demonic activities. Woo. That's a bad one. That's a lot easier than a lot of people think to say that. Much easier when we are not being controlled by the Holy Spirit to unwittingly be influenced by demonic spirits. 
It leads to hostility, quarreling or fighting, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, divisions, the feeling that everyone is wrong except those in my own little group, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other kinds of sin. If it wasn't listed, it's just anything else, it's sin. Let me tell you again, as I have before, anything living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. And this is the way today's society basically lives. (laughs) The only way to escape sin and the punishment of it is to allow the Lord to fill our lives by the power of the Holy Ghost. And that, again, is many things in this study have been extremely challenging. But I hope that it is equally, if not more, encouraging that we can have these fruit in our lives if we will simply learn to surrender on a more regular basis to the influence of the Holy Spirit. So that we understand that every moment spent in prayer Every moment spent in worship or praise, every moment spent reading the Word of God, or any other activity that has Christian edification is making us more like Christ and producing this kind of fruit in our lives. If we walk in the Spirit, we shall not fulfill the lust. Of the flesh. So the answer is just walking in the Spirit. Sounds simple. Walk in the Spirit. Unfortunately, knowing what to do and doing it are sometimes not as easy. That's why we are here to encourage one another at Living Waters Fellowship. We do everything we can to strengthen one another, to grow and overcome life's struggles through the power of the Holy Spirit. We welcome you to join us anytime. God bless you in Jesus' name.